Hello, Internet. This is Anna, the current dungeon master of Gem Jammer. And this is Annie. I play the party's cleric, Jilliana. And we have something a little different for you today. Instead of one single episode of Gem Jammer, we're doing a hundred episodes. It's a recap. There's a lot of Gem Jammer. So let's cover the basics before we get into it. Okay, so Gem Jammer is an actual play Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition podcast. It's set in the Spelljammer setting. The show started in 2018. And like I said, there's over 100 episodes, so that is a lot of podcasts to get through. So Anna and I put our heads together and we decided we wanted to do a recap of all the important things you need to know. Uh, After listening to this episode, after us guiding you through together, you should be able to listen onward without any big issues. But, you know, I like this show. Maybe you should go back and listen to it from the start. Yeah, there's so much we're going to skim over, and we would really love for you to hear all the things our amazing friends got up to before this point. You can find a free transcript of this in an unlocked Patreon post, which will be linked in the episode description. So, if there's anything we say you don't understand, go check that. Yeah, as we all know, pivot to video and pivot to audio sometimes isn't as good as just reading an article. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So uh, going over some of the basics here, our original Dungeon Master for Gem Jammer was Kit Walker. They adapted aspects of the original 1989 Spelljammer setting into 5th edition before Spelljammer was officially re-released back in August 2022. Our producer of the entire series is Jake Mason, whose work you can find in the Hey Jake and Josh podcast network, including their incredibly long running uh, Power Rangers recap, The Morphin Grid, and their actual play variety series, The Cool Kids Table, as well as their Pokemon RP, uh, Pokemon World Tour United. Go check them out. They're so good. Okay, Anna. Yes. It is a big material plane out there. So where do we start with Gem Jammer? We start by zooming in on the planet of Eastheim in the coastal town of Stormhaven, which is home to three particular women. You may have noticed them on, on the on the cover art. Yeah. Uh, first off, we have Alviva, a human ranger who was originally played by Kit's mom, Vicky Sharon, and later by Alexi Peppers. Alviva is a girl in her late teens with pale skin, red hair, golden eyes, and a slight build. Alviva grew up in the woods close to Stormhaven in the care of a man named Grayson. She was told that she was given to him by elves who found her in the wreckage of a pillaged caravan when she was a baby. When Grayson realized he was dying, he sent Alviva out into the world to learn how to be a normal person, to varying degrees of success. Next up, we have Cacophony. She is an Aladrin bard played by Mackenzie Weaver. She's 310 years old, so middle-aged by elf standards, with light brown skin, blue hair, and eyes that change color depending on her mood. Cacophony is tall and voluptuous, and she swaps her outfits frequently. So, Cacophony is actually a stage name for the mild-mannered Shilwyn Petrus, or Wynn for short. Wynn's family farmed for the cruel noble Lady Ashling Olivet. Now, in order to stop her, Wynne developed a glamorous and flamboyant musician alter ego, which she used to infiltrate Olivet's retinue, then seduced and blackmailed her into treating her people fairly. 
She succeeded, but Cacophony was now a wanted woman. So in order to protect her family, who only knew her as Wynne, she moved away to Stormhaven. And finally, we have Jilliana, an Asimar cleric played by me, Annie Grayton. Jilliana has dark brown, freckled skin, platinum hair, bright green eyes, and a strong stout build. Jilliana was raised in a convent of Ethla, a local goddess of storms and motherhood. She grew up a devout follower of the mysterious silent deity, and when her Azamar heritage manifested as a teen, she considered it a sign that she should work even harder to carry out Ethla's unspoken will. Two years ago, she left the convent and moved to Stormhaven, where she trains in the Ethlan Temple under Mother Sylvia. Our story begins one summer night, when lights flash in the sky, and two stars seem to fall from the heavens and land in the wilds near Stormhaven. Our heroes investigate them at the behest of a mysterious traveller named Alana Bondar. They discover that the stars are actually magical flying ships called Spelljammers that have crash-landed on Eesheim. Alana Bondar reveals that she belongs to one such ship called the Kestrel. She asks for our hero's help rescuing her crew from the other ship, which is operated by dangerous arachnoid creatures called Neogi, which had attacked the Kestrel in the skies above Stormhaven. One rescue mission later, the party formally meets three members of the Kestrel's crew. The first officer, Alana Bondar, who is a human woman. The second officer, Mr. Hurst, who is a large hippopotamus man called a gif. And the cook, Finn, who is a small red kobold. Notably, they also find the corpse of the ship's captain, an elf named Estelar Navaris. Alana Bondar assumes command of the Kestrel and recruits the party to help them escape Eesheim, since none of the surviving officers can use magic, which is needed to fly the ship. With much surprise and awe, the party leave Eesheim, go on their first adventure into wild space. Our heroes fly to a nearby asteroid, home to the town of Port Meridian, where now Captain Bondar hires some crew to replace those lost in the crash on Eesheim. Meanwhile, our heroes get entangled with Grak, a small penguin creature called a Doa, played by guest Rio Rios. Grak leads them into Port Meridian's sewer system, claiming to be seeking a prize for his one true love, Lady La Pluma. Our heroes find and raid a secret vault containing a magic rock, which Grak takes, and a garish helmet with a blinking light on top that suspiciously resembles a 1976 Star Trek toy called the Space Fun Helmet. Cacophony also develops an extremely reasonable phobia of rugs. Grak ditches our heroes, who then have to find their own way out of the labyrinthine sewers. On their way out, our heroes find an inert, magical communication circle down in the sewers. Juliana records a circle and its glyphs for later analysis. After escaping the sewers, our heroes go to a bathhouse to clean off. There, Cacophony reveals her secret identity, Shilwen, or Win for short. Afterwards, Juliana goes to a nearby shrine to pray, but finds that she cannot contact Ethla while she is off Eesheim. A groundskeeper explains that most gods have trouble reaching into wild space outside of their spheres of influence. And Jill, who hasn't been without her goddess since she was six years old, has a massive crisis of faith. And her divinely magical abilities become severely impaired. The next day, Captain Bondar recruits three people a sullen human sorcerer named Kara, a handsome half-orc druid named Lachlan, and an enigmatic plant person named Veli. They fly back to Eesheim to drop off our heroes, who are no longer needed to pilot the ship. On their arrival, however, 
they find Stormhaven under attack by strange alien creatures called Draconians, who have been turned undead and are burning the town and defacing the Temple of Ethel with that strange communication symbol from the sewers. After driving off the threat, Jill speaks with the mother of her temple, who translates some of the glyphs. She determines that the symbol is associated with something called the Cult of the World Eater, a group, as our heroes would come to learn, that worships a titanic interplanar creature, the titular World Eater, also known as the Worm That Whispers. This particular attack was masterminded by an evil priestess named Takaris, who came from a planet called Kryn. Our heroes officially join the crew of the Kestrel, and commit to counterattacking Takaris before she can assault their home again. Our heroes leave Eesheim and head for the edge of their home crystal sphere called Stormspace, which is a massive crystal shell that contains Eesheim, Port Meridian, and all of local wildspace. They learn that all solar systems are encased in similar spheres, and they can travel between them through portals that appear in the shells, which lead to a strange sea of beautiful, highly flammable rainbow currents called the Phlogiston. Our heroes travel through this phlogiston from Stormspace to Grinspace. During this period, Cacophony, safe from the eyes and ears of Lady Olivet, relaxes more into her wind persona. Juliana develops an awkward crush on her new crewmate Lachlan, and Alviva tries to adjust to being around all these new and strange people. Arriving in Crin Space, the crew of the Kestrel encounters another adventuring party in a crossover event with the cast of The Cool Kids Table, Alan Sells, Shannon Maynor, Josh Nichols, and our very own producer, Jake Mason. Together, the Eesheim party and the Crin party uncover Takaris' plot to build an army of undead draconians and use them to conquer worlds for the cult of the world leader. They assault her base of operations and find evidence suggesting that she is but a small part of the cult, and that this is a project on a greater scope that has been in operation for hundreds and hundreds of years. During the showdown with Takaris, she ends up throwing Juliana off the top of her tower. As she falls, Jill prays to Ethla, and her prayers are finally answered. Her Asimar powers activate, and she grows spectral wings which allow her to fly back to the top of the tower. There, a shapeless avatar of Ethla appears to her and offers her comfort. This resolves her crisis of faith, and she regains free access to all of her divine magic. During this time, Jill also develops a rivalry with the Kryn half-elf Tuatha, played by Jake Mason, who flirts relentlessly with Lachlan, but also encourages Jill to hook up with him. And Cacophony, meanwhile, has a fling with the sexy shopkeeper Mara, played by Alan Sells. The Kestrel had been badly damaged in the assault on Takaris' base, so in order to pay for repairs, they fly to the sphere of tide space to look for work. There, in a floating city of ships called Providence Bay, they meet the Pirate King known as High Captain Ridian Blackjammer, who invites them all to a fancy party that our heroes immediately dub Space Prom. Ridian then hires them to find slash steal a magic cutlass for him. He sends with them the dashing Rake Max, a lycanthropic Vadoni swashbuckler, and Arturos Prosperoth, a strong and sexy Triton fighter. 
The arrival of Arturos marks the return of his player, Rio Rios, who previously played the Doar Grack. Arturos Prosperoth is the shortest and most muscular of our party. With long red hair and bright blue scale-covered skin, red eyes with black sclera, sharp teeth, and gills. He prefers not to think, but he is definitely both a lover and a fighter. He is also secretly king of his entire underwater sphere, a role he never wanted. He tries to keep it a secret, but our heroes soon learn not only of his royal lineage, but also his sisters, who could ascend to the throne by killing him. Our heroes, with Max and Artie in tow, fly to Kofu space, which is a completely solid crystal sphere filled with tunnels for ships to fly through. On the world of Vespa, our heroes infiltrate a place called White Manor, owned by the same Lady La Pluma whom Grac had spoken of back in Port Meridian. Thanks to Cacophony's incredible bardic abilities, our heroes succeed in stealing the Cutlass, escaping as a troop of wolf people assault the building and try to kill Max. Max explains that the soldiers are from his home planet of Vodon, where a millennia ago, genetic experiments caused an outbreak of lycanthropy that has since stabilized among the Vodoni population. Giuliana, who had been suspicious of Max since he joined the party, wonders why the Vidoni had been trying to kill him. When Wynne jokingly asked if he is a secret prince, a shocked Max revealed that he is, in fact, heir to the throne of the Vidoni Commonwealth. The Kestrel flees Vesper and sails back to Providence Bay. During this time, Max explains that the Vidoni attack has worried him and that he will need to go on his own to discover if the rest of the royal family, aka his parents and little sister, are in danger as well. To help out our heroes, he also decodes some encrypted notes from the Kestrel's former captain, Estelar Navaris. Evidence suggests that Navaris was actually a spymaster for the Imperial Elven Navy, and he was also investigating the cult of the World Eater. Max decoded notes give them a few destinations in which to seek out further cult cells. Over the course of the Cutlass heist, Alviva starts to pop in and out of existence. It becomes apparent that a magic ring she looted from Dakaris, which was supposed to give her powers of flight, malfunctions whenever it is out of crin space. She sometimes disappears into the Feywild, the magical plane of existence from whence came Fey and fairies, and she returns without any memory of what happened. At one point, she returns with strange magic powers, and it appears that she has committed to a magical warlock contract with an archfey, but she has no memory of this. At this point, Vicky Sharon steps down from her role as Alviva, and the role is picked up by Alexi Peppers. Our heroes return the Cutlass to High Captain Ridian, who pays them for their trouble and sends Arturos away with them permanently. Max slips away after bidding farewell to the crew and to Juliana in particular. Out of the blue, our heroes are spirited away to a spooky castle bearing no small resemblance to a spirit Halloween pop-up store that has taken over Castle Ravenloft. Over the next 11 episodes, guest Dungeon Master Chris Sims takes our heroes through a Halloween adventure featuring sexy costumes, rhyming riddles, monster matchmaking, pro wrestling, a library spider robot, and more. Upon their return, our heroes discover that no time has passed in the real world. The next destination, chosen from notes taken from Takaris' stronghold back on Kryn, is the desert planet of Herena. 
Herena previously had two sons, but one was magically collapsed into a black hole by the cult of the World Eater a thousand years ago. And that black hole is now eating its other son. Our heroes learn that black holes are magical portals to the plane of negative energy, from whence come all things related to death, unlife, nihilism, and other natural and unnatural things. Our heroes land at the desert town of Sky Harbor and meet a nerdy, bespectacled, dragonborn woman named Carolon Thazita. Thazita, who is affiliated with the record-keeping scholar-librarians known as the Seekers, hires our heroes to accompany her on an expedition across the desert to find the legendary tomb of a nameless priest. Our heroes, who discover that the tomb is connected to the cult, agree instantly. Cacophony, who is enchanted by Thazita, agrees even faster. Along the way, the Zeta shacks up with Cacophony and also offends Giuliana by calling her religion, Ethlinism, a cult and saying that gods are more trouble than they're worth. Upon discovering the tomb, our heroes join forces with a rival group of prospectors to unseal the doors, releasing a mummy lord who had been cursed and entombed alive a thousand years ago for bringing the cult to Harena. He had summoned the worm that whispers, leading to the present state of the desiccated planet and its two dead or dying sons. Our heroes chase this newly released enemy back to Sky Harbor and defeat him once and for all, with the help of the mysterious Kirin, a man our heroes met out in the desert, and his friend Sirka, a giant space serpent called a Sarfordin. Kirin and Sirka are affiliated with a mythical secret society called the Star Wardens a collective of spacefaring marshals who keep the peace in wild space. Kieran says that something about Alviva's fighting style seems strangely familiar, and he gives her an emblem that can magically contact him from anywhere. Alviva immediately dubs him her Sand Uncle, or Sunkle for short, and starts peppering him with questions. She asks about Star Wardens, if he can help find her birth parents, and generally anything he might know about her new enigmatic warlock patrons, who have recently given her a new friend, a pseudo-dragon from the Feywild, bound to her as her magic familiar. Alviva has named her Breadsticks. Unfortunately, Kieran cannot help with any of that. All right, folks, at this point, we are just about 50 episodes in. That is about the halfway point. Our mouths are really warmed up here, so we're doing great. How are you, folks? Are you ready to keep going? <laughs> Anna? Anna, how are we doing? Are we ready? Let's go. Let's go. All right. Since it has been several months since they suddenly departed Eesheim, our heroes make a trip back home to see their families. There, Arturos learns that a hit has been put out on him, and he is attacked in his sleep by assassins. After a fight, our heroes track the hit order to a spot along the coast outside Stormhaven, where they are attacked by a huge shark. Before the shark attack, our heroes see a triton duck underwater and disappear. Afterwards, Arturo searches the area underwater and discovers a sigil that would transport anyone who knew how to use it to the elemental plane of water, which can connect to any body of water in the universe. Realizing that the shore is not safe, our heroes redirect inland so that Alviva can visit her foster father Grayson, who had sent her away shortly before he passed. When they arrive at Grayson's house, they find his body dead in his own bed. Alviva now suspects that there was a lot her foster father had never told her, 
So she gives Juliana permission to cast Speak with Dead in order to ask Grayson's spirit five questions. Our heroes learn that Alviva was from space, not Isheim, and had been given to Grayson by Estelar Navaris, the same elf who had once camped in the Kestrel and investigated the cult of the World Eater. With her head spinning from the revelations, Alviva asks what Grayson had wanted her to be, to which the lingering spirit simply said the word, happy. Our heroes put Grayson to rest and hold a wake in his honor. Back in the asteroid city of Port Meridian, our heroes contact a crime syndicate called the Cinders to ask for help with Artie's assassins. Their representative, a man called Mr. Hatcher, agrees, as it will help him settle a business dispute. He and one of his associates stage a fake assassination in which they cut off and keep Arturos's long, luxurious red hair, which he treasured above all else. The loss of his hair is mourned by Artie almost as strongly as Grayson is mourned by Alviva. Meanwhile, Juliana goes on a date with her crush, the half-orc Lachlan, and Alviva steals an expensive book from the local library. Both of these things caused Jill an immense amount of stress, but at least she got to kiss a hot boy. Their business in Stormspace concluded, our heroes set out once more into wild space. Estelar Navaris's notes, as translated by Max the Secret Prince, point them to three new locations. The worlds of Biancarda, Iolara, and Tafos. Our heroes start on the world of Biancarda, a trade hub in the sphere known as Cabal Space. Upon arriving in its capital city, Senagora, our heroes discover a conspiracy in which many poor people are going missing. A noblewoman named Countess Tornancaza seems to be linked to the disappearances. They also meet a young woman named Natalia, whose family had been killed by Tornancaza's machinations, and whom Navaris's notes refer to as something called a star heart. When our heroes express that they know she is a star heart in the hopes of gaining her trust, Natalia is frightened. She helps them investigate the disappearances, which seem connected to some sort of vampire, and meet Countess Aguilar, an Aarakocra noblewoman who can help them get closer to Countess Tornincaza, who is their prime suspect. To our hero's surprise, Countess Aguilar has a romantic partner, Crack, the Doar who used our heroes to steal from a vault on their very first visit to Port Meridian back at the start of their adventure. Our heroes realize that Countess Aguilar is therefore none other than Lady La Pluma, who is revealed to be the head of a dangerous criminal organization known as The Flock. She also owns the White Manor our heroes ransacked in order to steal Black Jammer's Cutlass. Our heroes decide not to mention this. Together, our heroes and Lady La Pluma infiltrate a ball held by Tornincaza and her girlfriend, Captain Segretti, a wizard who captains Tornincaza's personal spelljamming ship. At that party, they learn that Tornincaza has strong ties to the Imperial Elven Navy, which is the largest naval power in all of Wildspace. Tornincaza locks the doors to her mansion and reveals that she is a vampire intent on taking over the council that governs the city. She and her vampire thralls proceed to kill most of the nobles there. Our heroes barely escape with their lives, though they are able to rescue two council members before fleeing. 
During the fight, Natalia starts glowing and giving off enormous amounts of magical radiant energy. She reveals later to our heroes that, as a Starheart, she has in her chest a small portal to the elemental plane of radiance instead of a heart. This limitless source of life energy can be emitted at will and is notably very deadly to undead and especially vampires. She keeps it a secret because Starhearts can also indefinitely power the vitality-draining Lifejammer Helms used by Niyogi slavers in their ships. Lifejammer Helms usually kill their hosts in exchange for massive boost to power and speed. Starhearts are exceedingly rare, only occurring in a small percentage of infants born in wild space, so Natalia keeps her head low so that she won't be enslaved for her very valuable powers. The fact that our heroes know her secret terrifies her. The next day, our heroes strategize as Countess Aguilar informs them that Tornan Kaza the Vampire has fled her home and holed herself up in the formidable city arsenal and has likely enthralled the entire city guard. Our heroes try to arrange a meeting with Captain Segretti in the interest of warning her that her girlfriend is a vampire and a murderer. Instead, Segretti ambushes them with a fireball that goes on to burn down Torn and Kaza's entire manor. During this fight, our heroes gravely wound Segretti, and the manor fire draws the attention of the city guard. Our heroes realize that the city prison is conveniently located right below the arsenal, and so allow themselves to be arrested and jailed. In a special one-shot using alternate characters, Countess Aguilar, acting as Lady La Pluma, leads a band of her old flock mercenaries to rescue our heroes. They are accompanied by Grack and the Starheart, Natalia. They break into the arsenal and free our heroes. From there, our heroes go up through the building and find Countess Tornincaza. The Countess explains that the Cult of the World Eater, which she happily serves, seeks the undeath of all things, reasoning that only undead can survive in the void of space. Our heroes, along with their allies, fight and defeat the vampire noblewoman, thus freeing the Guard, the Council, and the city from her evil. Afterwards, our heroes regroup with Countess Aguilar at her home. She tells them two key things. First, Captain Segretti, Countess Tornincaza's girlfriend, has died of her injuries from the fight the day before. Second, their ally Natalia believes our heroes have blackmailed her into helping them by threatening her with her Starheart secret. Aguilar advises that they should not contact her again. Our heroes do want to go find Natalia and apologize, but Aguilar says that will only make things worse. She will care for Natalia instead, and manage the city's council of which Natalia has been made a new member. With a sour taste in their mouths, our heroes leave Biancada to Lady La Pluma's designs. Our hero's next stop is a sphere called Hearthspace, which contains a ring world called Ayalara encircling a very, very hot star. Within the ruins of the abandoned ring world is a hatchery for lizard folk who believe that keeping their eggs warm in the super hot sun of Ayalara will make their children strong. The hatchery is under assault by undead spell sailors from the cult of the World Eater. At the hatchery, our heroes meet a cleric, a crocodilian lizard folk woman named Atra, who is the final remaining custodian of that facility. 
They also meet a young lizard folk boy named Kev, who had refused to leave with the last wave of escapees. When our heroes prove that they can help her deal with the cult, Atra explains that due to being born in space, a great many eggs in Ayalara will hatch star hearts, including Kev. The cult wants them for the same reason as the Niyogi, the source of infinite life energy inside their chests, which can power their ship's life jammer helms. Adra had called for help from her gnomish allies who evacuated most of the facility's eggs, but these reinforcements are still some time off. Our heroes decide to help Atra fortify the hatchery and fight the incoming ships of undead, which Atra has divined will land within a matter of hours. The cult sends a great many undead troops to assault Ayalara. Our heroes, having built safeguards for the hatchery itself, take to the skies to face the undead dreadnought head-on. The Kestrel, built more for speed than sturdiness, takes several devastating hits. Just when things seem hopeless, our heroes are aided by the arrival of the Gnomish ship, whose alarming weaponry handily destroys the undead ship. After defeating the surviving Death Knight captain and his strongest troops, our heroes meet the new arrivals, a group from the land of Gnometopia. Our heroes exchange pledges of friendship with their captain for that week, Sophie Coppertop. With the lizard folk's future secured, our heroes set off for the remaining destination from Navaris's notes. Tafos, a world in the sphere of Tor Cosmos. Along the way, Alviva dreams of Quicksilver and Stardust, two themes which have been associated with her newfound warlock powers and her patrons. This presages a vision in which the Niyogi homeworld is ravaged by a powerful shockwave before its sun collapses into a massive black hole with a dark, impossibly huge shape emerging from it. Upon their arrival, our heroes find that Tafos is a disc world perched atop the back of a gigantic bull. They also discover that Tafos is populated almost entirely by minotaurs. The spaceport, Lotto, is located on Three Rivers Island, a place inhabited by many dangerous monstrosities. There, Alviva does some research and discovers that her mysterious warlock patrons are none other than the Duke of Stardust and his husband, the Quicksilver Knight. These fey entities are avatars of space and time, and are known by many spell sailors throughout Wildspace. Meanwhile, Juliana tries to contact the local gods in order to learn more about what the cult of the World Eater might have gotten up to on Tafos. Their ocean god wants nothing to do with her, so she instead reaches out to the god of minotaurs, the demon prince Baphomet. To her great shock, he answers her. Baphomet doesn't just answer her. He pulls Jiliana's mind into a demiplane and speaks with her there. He says that she amuses him, and that she should consider whether her own god, the benevolent Ethla, is still worth following when she is so absent. At least, he claims, he is present despite his cruelty. Baphomet also tells Juliana that there is a legendary magical well on the island that lets anyone who drinks from it view all of creation. However, this well of infinity has a worm in it, and they have to get it out. He also tells her that the World Eater is not itself sapient, and that a being named Varengar is using the worm to his own ends. Baphomet then frees Jiliana from the demiplane, and she wakes up horrified back on Tafos. 
Our heroes decide to utilize the information Juliana got from Baphomet as they track the cult across Three Rivers Island. Along the way, they encounter a flock of extra-dimensional pegasi called the Daughters of Epona. Arturo saves one of their foals from drowning, and in exchange, their leader, called Dawnstar, grants Artie three calls for aid, which she will answer anywhere across space and time. At this point, we have reached episode 100 of Gem Jammer. We've done it, folks. We are so close. We lied when we said it was 100 episodes. It's 100 and change. It's 116. But good news, we're in the home stretch. Okay, so roughly around this point, this is when Kit Walker, our original dungeon master, retired from the campaign and actually handed the brains over to Anna here. That's me. We offer our heartfelt thanks to Kit for running this show for five years and for taking us on this wild ride and we wish them all the best in their future endeavors. You can find links to their current projects, including plenty of short stories, in the show notes. To celebrate the 100th episode milestone, our heroes are temporarily transported away from Tafos to a magical demiplane in the form of a crystal palace and charged with saving a captive princess. There, they have to solve cryptic puzzles and overcome visions of their self-doubt. After a great many messy feelings and heartfelt introspections and group hugs, the demiplane starts crumbling. The princess is revealed to be none other than the half-elf Tuatha of Kryn, played by returning guest from the Cool Kids table and editor Jake Mason. Tuatha had been attacked in her sleep by a deadly night hag, but Tuatha's unpredictable wild magic reached out and plucked our heroes from Tafos in order to rescue her. Our heroes defeat the night hag and meet the goddess Mishakal, an ally of Tuatha from her home planet of Kryn. Mishakal thanks our heroes for saving Tuatha and grants them magical gifts. She gives Wynne a conductor's baton that transforms into a magical rapier. Artie gets a gun that shoots fish projectiles. Alviva gets a magic cape of Quicksilver and Stardust passed on from her warlock patrons. And Juliana gets an unsettling set of magical prayer beads passed on as a gift from Baphomet. At the end of this interlude, our heroes are returned to their camp on Three Rivers Island to resume their hunt for the cult and for the Well of Infinity. Continuing on, our heroes fight their way past deadly vines, giant monsters, and disturbing obelisks. Along the way, they encounter a unicorn who once safeguarded the Well of Infinity before it was corrupted. She explains that past all the dangers of the island, the cult has set up a camp around the well and are led by a strange veiled woman known only as the Oracle. She asks for their help in routing the cultists who drove her away so that she can purify the well and remove the stain of the World Eater. Jiliana, meanwhile, has been keeping both Captain Bondar and her crush, Lachlan, informed of their progress using the Sending spell. At Artie's behest, she also uses Sending to magically contact their old friend Max, the swashbuckler and secret prince. They've all been getting more and more worried about him as they've heard rumors of growing chaos on Vodon, where he was supposed to be looking for the royal family, aka his parents and sister. 
When she sends him, though, Max replies with an angry and disdainful message, telling our heroes, and especially Juliana, to leave him alone and never bother him again. Our heroes arrive at the cultist camp at the Well of Infinity, where they decide to pose as new recruits. Infiltrating the cult, our heroes drink from the well and are overwhelmed as the infinite boundlessness of all of time and space is crammed into their mortal brains. This is accompanied by a massive dose of nihilism from the corruption of the worm in the well. The ramifications of this are yet to be fully explored. Our heroes recover enough to clear the area around the well. The unicorn, encouraged by their presence, sneaks into the cultist base and begins to purify the well, asking our heroes to protect her while she does so. The cult retaliates, sending zombies and giant skeletons to stop them. The oracle herself also appears and is revealed to be a nightmarish minotaur with no face, warped by the power of the well. There's a heated battle involving magical light, bear traps, and a fiery demon dog summoned by the prayer beads Juliana received from Baphomet. Our heroes, however, ultimately prevail. When Alviva fights back against the Oracle's harmful spells, the well water inside her activates latent magic, transforming her into a star heart. She is just as surprised as everyone else when she radiates light that burns the Oracle into ash. With the well purified, our heroes head back to the port town of Lotto. On the way, Juliana receives another sending spell from Max that is strangely written in the encoded language of Thieves' Cant. Wynne is able to translate the message, which contains a plea for aid, a location to meet at, and an apology. Our heroes are angry with him after his prior hurtful message, but they decide to help him anyway. First... However, they will return to Eesheim, as it has been six months since they first left home. Alviva wants to search Grayson's home for any clues about her origins now that she knows that she's a Starheart. Additionally, Wynne wants to visit her family, since her experience in Tuatha's demiplane reads concerns about her old nemesis, Lady Olivet, who is still hunting her alter ego, Cacophony. Once their business on Eesheim has been concluded, they will return to the tunnel-laden sphere of Kofu space, where Max has requested a rendezvous. That night, Alviva receives another vision from the Duke of Stardust and the Quicksilver Knight. In it, she, some of the Kestrel crew, and Kieran, the Star Warden from Herena, assemble at her foster father Grayson's house and share a smoking pipe. When she awakes, Alviva contacts Kieran through the magic emblem he gave her, explaining the situation. He agrees to take his friend Sierka the Safadin and meet her on Isheim. Back in Lotto, Wynne receives a package and letter from Carillon Thazita, the dragonborn seeker she fell for back on Herena. In the letter, Thazita enthusiastically returns Wynne's romantic feelings and says she's working on a way to speed up communication between them. She gives her a magic sending stone to act as a stopgap. On the way back to Stormspace, where Eesheim is, Lachlan and Jill, who have been on a few dates but have never really talked about the state of their relationship, finally talk about their feelings. Realizing that they are both smitten but terrible at communicating, they happily agree to be boyfriend and girlfriend. 
Upon arriving in Eesheim, our heroes fly directly to Grayson's house. There, Alviva, Kieran, Lachlan, and the rest of our heroes find a magic plant growing on Grayson's grave. In accordance with Alviva's dreams, they smoke it and experience some shared visions. These reveal that Alviva was bred as a Starheart by Estelar Navaris, the elven spymaster and former captain of the Kestrel. She was intended to be used as a living magical bomb should the cult of the World Eater summon the worm back into the universe. Grayson, an ally of Navaris, was bound to help him by the spell Gesh, which would kill him if he ever disobeyed. Grayson, however, found loopholes in the Orders and raised Alviva in a loving home as his daughter. When Navaris came to collect Alviva in the Kestrel, Grayson turned on him and contacted a Niyogi ship to intercept and kill him. The blowback from the Gash spell cost him his life and led to the incidents that started this entire adventure. The ships falling from the sky near Stormhaven, our heroes meeting Captain Bondar, and the rescue of her crew from Niyogi slavers. Alviva is understandably quite upset by this revelation, but she's also reassured and comforted by the lengths to which Grayson would go to protect her. The next morning, Kieran offers to take Alviva under his wing as an apprentice Star Warden. He suspects her birth parents might be among other hidden cells of Star Wardens, and believes he can help her learn to control her Starheart powers. Alviva, who feels ready to face her fate head-on, agrees. After many goodbyes, she and Kieran ride Siaka off into the sunrise. And at this point, we say goodbye to Alexi Peppers, who stepped away from the show for many happy and time-consuming reasons. We offer our heartfelt gratitude to her for her time on Gem Jammer. She gave something truly unique to Alviva, and we wish her all the best. Links to her current projects are listed in the show notes. And with that, dear listeners, we are now up to date with the current episode of Gem Jammer. We did it! That's a lot of episodes! We did it. Well done, everybody. Pats on the back all around. <laughs> At present, our heroes have been reconnecting with family and friends in Stormhaven, and will soon venture forth to face new challenges in Port Meridian, Verdoni Space, and beyond. <laughs> As you can probably imagine, there's a lot we had to skim over. So much. So much. So much. But... If you enjoy future episodes, feel free to go back and check out our archives. Uh, there are some fantastic jokes and there, are some small storylines we didn't get a chance to go over, and just generally, just some very funny people playing dungeons and or dragons. Uh, some great adventures there. Definitely. But that's all in the past. We're looking ahead to the future. And until then, I'm Annie Creighton. And I am Anna Emmeline. Thank you so very much for listening. Stay safe, and we'll catch you next time. Afterwards, our heroes regroup with Countess Aguilar at her own. Ohm? Ohm. 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 You got you gotta get the H there. <laughs> yeah. Like that's not even my accent. I why know, am I right? suddenly British? Why why, 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 why did you jump into British, a cockney? Eh?
Hello, hello, hello. Good grief. It's a story, isn't it? (laughs) Huh. The predominant type of battleship in the earliest 20th century, named after the first of its kind, the British Royal Navy's HMS Dreadnought. Well, how about that? I didn't know it was named after one specific ship. Me neither. I mean, it's a great fucking name. It's a great fucking name. I suppose they were like, yeah, this is a great name. Let's make it canon. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's- wow. Make it canon. <laughs> and which ships cannons. Just when things seem hopeless, our heroes are aided by the arrival of the gnomish ship, whose alarming weaponly... Weaponly. <laughs> With the lizard folk's future secured, our heroes set off for their final desk. No, I can't say final destination. <laughs> with the lizard folk f- with the with the lizard folk's future secured our heroes set off for the final no my brain wants to say final <laughs> fuck you <laughs> with the lizard folk future damn it <laughs> <laughs>